Emmaus Church. My name's Nathan. Happy to see you here. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. I'm going to be kind of skipping around in the Gospel of John today, which is the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, let's see, I'll look the page number up for you really quickly. Somewhere around like 750 will put you kind of close to where we'll be. Scripture will be on the screen as well. Also, raise your hand if you like a sermon notes page. This will help you follow along on the back of the page. Some stuff that's happening here in the community this month. We are in November. Can you believe it? I cannot. It is here. Like it or not, ready or not, it's, it's here. And if this is your very first time here at Emmaus, I hope you feel really welcomed. I hope you feel at home. I know that um, something brought you here. And maybe it's a great thing. And uh, you, you got a reason to say thank you to God. And you acknowledge that at some level, so you're here. Maybe, there's, maybe stuff broke this week at a level that hasn't moved you like it, like it now has, and maybe you're here kind of as a last-ditch shot at maybe something in this world makes some sense. Uh, either way, I hope you feel welcome here and that you know that this is a community that wants to walk alongside you. Uh, we are putting our whole hearts into this idea of community and the invitation from God to us and from us to one another to share life together. Uh, we would love to do that with you. Uh, we fail at it a lot, but we have not stopped trying. Uh, we want to continue to lean into this value of community. If this is your first time here, uh, we'd love to send you home with a bag of coffee beans that were roasted up this last week. They're fresh and uh, they're out there by the uh, bookstore. Also, at the bottom of your sermon notes page, there's a place to write in kind of personal contact info, just a way for us to stay connected. If you feel good about that, you could write that in and tear it off and hand it off later in the morning. All right. <clears throat> I thought I'd start by telling you how I put gas in my truck. Okay. Uh, here's how it works. I open the little white door on the side of my truck, and uh, then I unscrew the gas cap, and I always put the gas cap inside the bed of the truck. Consequently, I've never lost it. Yes, never drove away, driven away without it. Um, then I insert the gas nozzle into what I learned is called the fuel filler inlet. I never knew the name for that thing, but that's what it's called. And then I depress the handle and gas starts flowing. You know what's interesting? I never see where the gas goes. Uh, I never know that it's full except that it stops automatically, like it just stops flowing automatically. And so then I figure it's full. I assume the gas tank is full. So then I return the gas nozzle to the gas pump. I get inside the truck. I start the ignition. The gas gauge confirms my assumption that the tank is full. And I drive away, and I don't think about it again for several days, sometimes a week. I never see the fuel enter the internal combustion engine. I never see any internal combusting happening. Uh, no evidence of that, at least to my eyes. I never actually witness this whole series of events that takes place between the moment I put fuel in the truck and the moment I drive away and the truck is operating as I assume that it will and I get down the road. Nevertheless, I go on and I continue forward with my life and I go on to the next thing because I know my truck has fuel. Or, I believe my truck has fuel. 
Is it something that I know or is it something that I believe? And is there a difference? And does it matter? A couple weeks ago, my boys and I were gathering firewood and I drove my small truck. My son Isaiah drove my dad's big truck, which has two gas tanks. And uh, on the way, Isaiah stops to get some gas. He fills up one of the gas tanks. He drives away, and the truck stops, apparently out of gas. It sounds like it's out of gas. Turns out it had run out of gas, but thankfully, there are two tanks in my dad's big truck. So Isaiah flipped it to the second tank, the one that was full, the one that he had just filled up, and still the truck won't start. What we learn later is that the second gas tank has a fuel pump inside it, and the fuel pump doesn't work. So... um, that there's gas in that tank that's never going to reach the engine, no matter what you do. Now, we believed that the gas tank was full of gas, right? And we believed that the fact that the gas tank was filled with gas would enable the truck to run. But in reality, that did not happen. So it didn't matter how much we believed it. It didn't matter how much we wanted it to be true. What we believed was not rooted in reality. And consequently, what we wanted to happen, what we hoped would happen... It just simply didn't happen. I read this quote by uh, an author named Dallas Willard a year ago, and it stuck with me. This is what Dallas writes. When desire conflicts with reality, sooner or later reality wins. Last fall, I taught a senior-level philosophy course at a local college, and we used in this class a book by this author, Dallas Willard, called Knowing Christ Today. Um, I loved this book. Dallas Willard, in case you haven't heard of him, he died six years ago. He was 77 years old. From 1965 until 2013 when he died, he was a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California, USC. But he's probably even better known, at least within Christian communities, as a writer of books about Christianity. One of the books that is probably his most famous is called The Divine Conspiracy. It's a massive book. Parts of this book, Knowing God Today, were so helpful to me last fall and so helpful to the students I was teaching. I wanted to share, I thought of you. I thought, I want to share this with our community at Emmaus. And I've really, I've literally been looking forward to sharing this series with you for a year. So I'll be drawing significantly from Dallas Willard's work, not something I frequently do. I want you to know I will be doing that this series. And I highly recommend to you anything that he's written. He is fantastic and clear and brilliant. So today we'll start a a four-part series. It'll go through the month of November, and it's called That Explains It. Jesus' answers to four life questions. Here's a bit about where we've been in case you're new with us today. We came out of the summer uh, with a series that focused on bringing our honest emotions to God. It was called Words We Say to God. And then we focused on bringing our relationships to God. It was a series called Becoming One. This is not a marriage series. And then we focused recently on bringing all of life's stages to God. 13 all the way up to retirement age. And and this is the series that we just finished last week called Generations. This next series, I want to focus on some core concepts that everyone wonders about at some level. And what I'm really going to talk about is the mind the life of the mind, what we think, and bringing our perspectives on reality to God. So here's here's the fuel behind this for me, friends. 
It is, it is, it is this conviction, this growing awareness that the general quality of thinking within much of the Christian community today is so shallow that uh, Christianity is virtually written off in large segments of our culture as having nothing meaningful to say about what's really going on, as having nothing intelligent to say about the problems that are really affecting the culture today. In fact, Christians are often regarded as people who don't think. And this shallow, bumper sticker level logic that seems to somehow uh, sustain the level of curiosity in much of the church, or is passed off as what Christians believe, I think is tragic. I think it totally ignores the depth and the quality of the intellectual tradition within Christianity, which has, which has existed at this powerful level for more than 2,000 years, and then before that into Jewish writings. It's as if modern Christian, um, it's as if modern Christians have been handed the keys to this amazing library of knowledge, but we've forgotten even that it exists. We don't even know there's a library of Christian knowledge, of knowledge of what is God and people and the relationship between the two. We need to learn from this body of knowledge, friends. We need to become more aware of this body of knowledge. Our children need to learn from this body of knowledge. They need to know how to engage in what little conversation remains in our culture from a position of being informed by this body of knowledge. How do Christians think about the world? They need to know how to engage from this perspective. So here's how I'd like to spend the next couple minutes together. First, I want to talk about the difference between knowledge and belief like the gas tank analogy, right? And then I want to look at how um, what we know and how what we believe shape the way we see the world. It's called a worldview. And then I'll ask the first of four basic worldview questions. And then finally, I'll show you Jesus' answer to that first worldview question, all right? Here we go. So first, a first, a brief, uh, brief word about knowledge and belief. Today we hear a whole lot about what people believe, what this party believes, what this tradition believes, what this group of people believe, what this religion believes, what you believe, what I believe. What is conspicuously absent from the conversation is conversation about, is, is discussion about what we know, about what we know. Willard writes the difference between belief and knowledge is huge, and it affects every area of life. He goes on to say, not having knowledge of the central truth of Christianity is certainly one reason for the great disparity between what Christians profess and how they behave which is, he says, a well-known and disturbing phenomenon. <laughs> In other words, what we say or what we profess has largely failed to impact the way we live as Christians in this culture. What has affected the way we live is what we know, is what we know. Now, we know something we actually have knowledge of something when we think about, speak about, 
and treat it as it actually is in reality. That's knowledge. My dad knows his truck. To be specific, he knows that there's a fuel pump in the second gas tank that doesn't work. So any gas put in that gas tank is not going to reach the engine. Why does that knowledge matter? Well, in order to successfully use that truck, you need to actually know the realities of that truck, which is to say you need to know how that truck actually works. Knowledge is rooted in reality, okay? Knowledge is rooted in reality. Belief, in contrast to knowledge, is not necessarily tied to reality. Belief is not necessarily, sometimes, but not necessarily tied to reality, Isaiah and I fully believed that filling the second gas tank would enable the truck to run, but in reality, it did not. Why? Because our belief was not rooted in reality. Okay? Our belief was not rooted in reality. What did we do? We acted on our belief, because that's what you do with beliefs. You act on them. We acted on our belief, but our actions did not result in what we hoped for because our belief was not rooted in reality. Our belief was false. It was a false belief. It was a mistaken belief. Beliefs are so important because they motivate our actions, right? It's what we believe about something that motivates what we do. Whether our beliefs are true or false, whether they're based in reality or perception, our beliefs move us. But even though our beliefs move us, they will ultimately not work for us unless... They are based in reality. They are based in actuality. If your beliefs are not rooted in reality, they will still move you. If your beliefs are not rooted in reality, they will still move you. However, they will leave you stranded on the side of the road. For the basic simple truth that they were not true, they were not based in reality. So, There's what we know, and there's what we believe. And there's a big difference between the two. You with me so far? Okay. More on that next week. Let's move to worldview for a minute. There are two levels of knowledge. Two levels of knowledge. There are this, like, particular, specific, and circumstantial details about a thing like how a, visit, how a vehicle runs, what kind of gas it takes, the certain parts that are included in that vehicle, which parts are working, which parts aren't working. Okay, there's this particular, specific, circumstantial level of knowledge. And then there's this second level of knowledge, this deeper level of knowledge, which is the general outlook on life and the world. Like, for instance, to keep with this analogy, the, the general awareness that people drive cars. In our culture, people drive cars. And, and so you can work in one town and you can live in another town and you can drive 20 miles for a lunch appointment. That's realistic in our culture because people drive cars. The second kind of knowledge, this deeper general awareness, this way of seeing things, this is called a worldview. It's how we see the world, right? And worldview has to do with the nature of reality. The worldview has to do with the nature of reality. Cultures have worldviews and individuals have worldviews. In order to understand a person or a culture, you need to know something about the way they see the world, about their worldview. For example, in some cultures, if you would say, let's meet 20 miles from here for lunch, 
that would be ridiculous because you can't walk 20 miles for lunch. And if you're in a culture where 20 miles is a, a distance that you imagine walking, well, then that's, that just doesn't happen. The knowledge affects the way you see reality. But in our culture, if you said, hey, let's meet 20 miles from here for lunch, I would say, sure, what time? Because in our culture, we understand that that's a realistic distance to cover because people drive cars. It's just part of the way we see the world. Everyone has a way of seeing the world, a general understanding of reality, a worldview. It's unavoidable to have a worldview. We all have a way of seeing things. Most of us are pretty unaware of the way we see the world because it's subconscious. It's subconscious. If you ask me about how I think about the world, especially if I hadn't been given time to prepare, I would say, uh, it's just the way it is. That's what I would say. It's just the way it is. For, like if you, if you were to ask a fish what it's like to live in the ocean, assuming it was a talking fish, she would say, I've never really thought about it. It's just the way it is, right? It's just the way it is. Okay, all this might sound really theoretical and abstract. Is this feeling theoretical and abstract just a little bit? I would say, actually, there's nothing more practical than your worldview, there is nothing more practical than the way you see the world because the way you see the world shapes the way you think about things and the way you act, the way you live, the way you see your life, and the way you act and behave and the things you do in your life. There's nothing more practical than this. Dallas Willard writes, you cannot opt out of having a worldview. You can only try to have one that accords with reality. You can't opt out, but you can try to embrace a worldview or shape your worldview in a way that is in accordance with reality. He goes on to say that because worldview is so influential, it is also dangerous. He says worldview is where we most need to have knowledge that is secured truth. Worldview, the way I see the world, the way, the, the, the way I see the world that influences what I think and what I do, that's where I need secured knowledge, secured truth. That's where I need to be right, right? That's where I need to know something. All right, part three. Uh, here are, according to Dallas Willard, four basic worldview questions that everybody asks whether they realize it or not. The first question is this. What is reality? <clears throat> the second question is this. Who has it made? The third question, who is good? This gets to ethics. Who is good? And the fourth question, how do you become good? Right? Others have articulated it slightly differently, but these are four questions that every worldview answers. And each of us, if we were asked the right questions by the most insightful or a, 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 a adequately insightful person, they could get to our own answers to these four questions as well. What is reality? Who has it made? Who is good? And how does one become good? Let's just take the first question today, all right? And then we'll handle the rest, the rest of the Sundays in November. 
Here's the first question, what is reality? The foundational part of a worldview is always what it considers to be real. That's where the whole thing starts. That's what it's all based on. You could put it like this, reality is what you can rely on. That's what reality is. It's what you can rely on. Jesus tells a story in, John, in Luke chapter 12 about a wealthy farmer whose fields produce this massive crop. He doesn't have enough room to store all the food that he grows. And in Jesus' story, Luke chapter 12, this is what the farmer says. This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And then Jesus continues with his story and he says, but God said to him, God said to the farmer, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? So in the story, the wealthy farmer's view of reality includes the belief that he has many years to enjoy plenty of good things, which is fine, right? Except that he happens to be wrong. That's the, that's the fault, right? That's the flaw, he believes it to be real. That is what he is relying on. I got plenty of time to enjoy plenty of good stuff. He's got lots of time, except he actually doesn't. Here's another great Willard quote. Mistakes about reality lead to brutal encounters with it. Yeah, brutal encounters with it. When you make a mistake about what's real... If you believe something to be real that isn't real, we have a word for that. It's called an illusion. And illusions about what is real when we discover that, in fact, they were illusions, uh, they lead to great disappointment. Great disappointment. So the first basic life question is, what is reality? How might you answer that question? How do you see our culture, different segments of it, answering that question? Why don't we take a minute, turn to the one next to you, and just discuss that for a minute. What is reality? What is reality? How does our culture see reality? How do you see reality? Go ahead, take a minute and talk about that.
you figure it out? <clears throat> what are some examples that you see in our culture? What, how does our, what does our culture say, this is the ultimate reality? This is what you can rely on. What are some examples of that? Oh, sorry? Proof? Is that what you said? I'm not even seeing where, where you're coming from. <laughs> sorry, sorry. There we are. Andrea, thanks. Yeah. Do you mean specifically like scientific proof? Yes. Yeah. Some sort of experienced dynamic, right? Some sort of experiential basis. Yes. That's a great example. Somebody else? Koa? Okay, truth is reality, right? To which Pilate would say, what is truth, right? Good. You're on it, man. You're on it. Good. What else? What else would culture say? What else do you see lifted up in the, in the um, communication of our culture, the media of our culture? Kathy? Okay, often right. It is what the popular opinion, uh, whatever popular opinion prevails, right? That's, that's reality. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Dennis. Climate change. Good. Some kind of a, right, some kind of something that maybe we see, maybe we don't, um, and ultimately we're needing to trust somebody's perspective on it, right? Who's right, who's wrong? Not sure, but, uh, but this is a good example because it has become such a, um, it has, become lift, it has been lifted up by much in our culture as the issue, right? As the issue. So we should determine other things based on this because it's reality. So it's actually a really good example of reality. Chris? Fear. Fear. Okay, there's a great example. Fear as reality. It's not very hopeful, but it could be very accurate. Yeah. Rob? Sure. It's up to you, man. You're the center of the universe. Right. Seth? Right. Right, feelings, how I feel about something, right? Feels good, it's true for me. If it doesn't feel good, then I reject it. Michael? Sure, yeah, there's whole paradigms that we embrace as reality or not. Whether it's the American dream, uh, the ideal of um, communism, other parts of the world, other times or whatever. Yeah, good. Maybe one more? Elaine? Science? Sure. Right, this some sort of hard, factual, provable, formulaic, good. Good examples, right, and, until it's changed, right? And, until a light wave is also a particle. What? All right, so let's, uh, let's answer, let's look at this. This is Jesus' answer. Uh, I would offer this, and, and I'm rooting this in um, Dallas's writings uh, and in the scripture, but this is... This is a shot at Jesus' answer to the what is reality question. Simply stated, according to Jesus, reality is God and God's kingdom. God and God's kingdom. Here's the logic. God is the only person who can say without qualification, I am. God is the only person who can say without qualification, without saying I depend on that, I depend on this, I was created by this, you need to give me food or I'm not. God is the only one without qualification who can say, I am. This is actually God's response to Moses back in Exodus 3 when Moses says, who is talking to me? God says, I am 
that I am, which is a way of saying, I exist without dependence upon another. Some understand I am that I am as my being is based on my being. I am the ground of reality. What is reality according to Jesus? God and God's kingdom, God's reign. This is what Josh was uh, calling to mind as he called us into worship. What is God's reign? What is God's kingdom? Wherever what God wants done is done. That's his kingdom. Wherever what he wants done is done. You see this played out in Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. They ask him, teach us how to pray. And this is what he says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which, among other things, is Jesus teaching his followers to recognize the reality of God. Hallow his name. And then to live in his reality here on earth as it is in heaven. This is what, is this what Jesus believed? Yes, but it's more than that. It's what Jesus knows. It's what Jesus knows, right? He claims to know this based on what you said, Andrea, based on personal experience. He knows this based on personal experience. Now I'll be in John for a bit. John 16, 28, Jesus says, I have come, this is at the end of his ministry, I have come from the Father and entered the world, and now I am leaving the world, I'm going back to the Father. Personal experience, okay? Earlier in John's gospel, in chapter 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. What is reality? According to Jesus, reality is God and God's kingdom. He says he knows this based on personal experience. And in addition to that, others, based on their personal experience with Jesus, specifically with his exper- or their personal experience with his divine power, they testify to the, to the, to the fact that Jesus is right. In other words, his words and his deeds demonstrate a power that is beyond human. And this is the testimony of his father, of his followers, uh, which, by the way, they maintain even though it takes them all the way to their death. They maintain their testimony about the divinity of Jesus all the way to their death because they knew it was true. They knew it was real. They knew that Jesus was God based on their experience with him. He created wine out of water. He fed thousands of people from a little boy's lunch. He speaks and people with diseases are healed. People who are oppressed by spirits are free. Dead people come back to life. (laughs) So uh, the message of the early Christians is not just that. It's not just that they believe Jesus is God the Son. It's that they know he is God the Son based on their experience. One of Jesus' disciples, John, put it this way at the very beginning of his gospel. This is the first words out of John's gospel. In the beginning 
was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Through Him, all things were made. Nothing, without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. He begins with this concept of the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Then he personalizes the Word, starts calling the Word He. Then, a little bit farther down in John's Gospel, verse 14, he continues saying, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Later in the New Testament, a letter from this same man, John, is included. Actually, three of them are. This is from the first one. It's called 1 John. And he writes this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, we proclaim to you this eternal life which was with the Father and then appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen, what we have heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, fellowship with the Father and with his Son. Who's he been talking about? Jesus Christ. So the first basic question that shapes the way that you see and experience the world, that forms the way you think about reality, that forms the way you interact with reality, is what is reality? Jesus' answer to that question, God and God's kingdom. And so because that's Jesus' answer, that becomes the answer of the early followers of Jesus. They're called Christians. What's reality? God and God's kingdom. All right, I, I believe a lot of things. Some of the things that I believe I know to be true. Some of the things I believe, I think they're true. I hope they're true. I believe the Dodgers would win the World Series. Okay. It's a false belief, it was heresy. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> Jesus declares himself to be, I'm almost done. Jesus declares himself to be one with God to be God in the flesh, to be the exact representation of God revealed to us, and then he invites us to believe that. And belief is what matters, okay? Belief is what he requires, and belief is what he praises in people. Even some surprising people, like Romans, Roman, Roman soldiers, He's talking about believing something. Why? Because he said it was true. Jesus is talking about believing something because he said it was true. So I believe it because Jesus has experienced it and declares it to be true. That's enough. Okay, that is enough. Believing something is true because Jesus said it was true is enough. Here's what's really intriguing to me. There's more that is possible. There's more 
that is possible. This belief, Jesus says, can be your belief, Patrick, my belief, Connie, your belief. Our beliefs can be based on, yes, what Jesus says to be true, but they can also be based on our own personal experience, our own knowledge. In other words, first, our beliefs are based on Jesus's experience, Jesus's knowledge. But our beliefs can also become rooted in our own personal knowledge, on our own personal knowledge of reality. Your own first-hand experience with God and God's kingdom. Okay? Here's where Jesus says that. This is not my idea or Dallas's. Jesus says this in John chapter 8. The end of this, we've talked about it before. It's a super famous line. Here's John 8, 31. To the Jews who had believed him. They've already believed him. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. If you hold to my teachings, you're really my students. You're really my apprentices. You're you're really my followers. If you hold to my teachings, Jesus says, you're my disciples. And then you will know the truth. You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Isn't that amazing? That's incredible to me. Jesus is saying that your worldview, the way that you think and the way that you act, it can be grounded in ultimate reality. It can be grounded in ultimate reality. It can be grounded in truth, not illusion. And beyond that, you and I can actually know the truth. And we can experience this truth. Not just think maybe this is true. Not just hope this is real. But know it. Experience it. How does this kind of personal knowledge come? Jesus says, by holding to his teachings. By believing what Jesus says. And then thinking and acting accordingly. Do you follow me? This is how this knowledge comes. First, I believe what I don't know. First, I believe what Jesus says. And I just keep obeying what he says and living in accordance to what he says. Why do you think that, Nathan? Because Jesus said it. That's my best answer. Why do you think that? Because Jesus said it. Why are you doing that, Cynthia? Because Jesus told me to do it. Jesus instructs his followers to do it. So I believe because of what Jesus said. My belief is based on Jesus' personal knowledge. But then, as I hold to his teachings, as I remain in his teachings, as I obey him, as I follow him, as I trust him, as I live according to his teachings, I begin to experience the truth, myself. I begin to experience God and the kingdom of God myself. And as I believe him and as I hold to his teachings, I begin to know the truth. And as we believe him, we just believe what he says, which is great. But then as we continue to hold to his teachings and follow him and obey him, then we will know, we will know the truth. And we will not be disillusioned because the truth will not disappoint us. The truth instead, friends, will set us free. Amen? The truth will set us free. 
and then we shift, and now we've experienced this thing that is possible. Jesus himself says it's possible. We can actually know God. We can actually live in the kingdom of God. What is reality? God is reality in his kingdom. How do you know that? I know it. I've experienced it. Didn't start that way. At the beginning, I was just trusting Jesus. It felt pretty risky. Wasn't sure it would work out. But as I obeyed him, as I followed him, as I put my life into submission under Jesus as Lord, and I stuck with it when it got hard, and I didn't ditch when it got painful, I looked for him in the dark, and I found him, oh my goodness, now I'm starting to experience what Jesus was talking about personally. Now I have a personal relationship with God. Oh man, I mean, come on. That is what we need. We don't have time for a spirituality that doesn't make sense in our real life. We cannot be satisfied with um, hearsay Christianity, right? Let's encourage one another. Let's be the strength others need when they don't feel it. They don't have it. They don't know it. That's okay. That's the journey. But let us press on toward the prize, toward the goal, right? So that we can know this good God and the joy and the power of life in his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the wisdom of the church. I thank you for the way that it has been preserved and protected for millennia and the blessing of having the accessibility to the word and to the early teachings of the church. And I thank you for the community, this now, right here, right now community um, of followers of God. And I pray that together you would use all of us and all of it to open our hearts and minds to what is real. And then that you'd give us the grace we need to live according to reality. Help us to see clearly, to discern the truth. And most of all, I pray for the grace to keep going with you, to persevere so that we would know the truth and that the truth would set us free. In Jesus' name, amen.